All right, so I'm, I'm doing what I've asked others to do today. It's been a while, but I'm spending, it's a lovely fall day in Philadelphia. And uh, I connected with someone online who is visiting town because uh, I was sort of plaintive about wanting to have company. <laughs> and uh, so this visitor, I'm showing this person around Philadelphia today. And I'm, I, I actually, it's amazing that when you sort of get yourself in the right mindset, all of these stories fall into place. So I'm on Girard Avenue. Uh, Girard Avenue is, it's about a 20 minute, 15, 20 minute bus ride from my house. I just live just south of Girard Avenue. Uh, we're over on the east side of town. I'm more on the west side of town. And we're at the, uh, the shrine of St. John Newman. And St. John Newman uh, was a Bohemian uh, priest who was the first uh, male canonized as a saint in the, in, in the United States. And he came in the 1830s during uh, sort of a financial crisis, which we'll talk about a little bit more later on Third Street. But he was a German-speaking priest, and he came into New York and spent a lot of his time uh, in uh, upstate New York, in rural cabins, and then eventually uh, went down to Maryland and was uh, appointed Bishop of Philadelphia in 1952. And uh, yeah, and so, and he died pretty young in 1948, uh, sorry, 1840, he died at the age of 48. Sorry about that, he died at the age of 48. Evidently he worked really hard and he only wore one pair of boots according to the Wikipedia article. Um, but the key thing here that I wanted to point out was, you know, we talked a lot about um, religious code and the word and collective behavior and civilizing forces and, you know, part of what I wanted to talk about in California was the mission system. And this is, you know, not to sh throw shade on the Catholic Church, but just to have us reflect about um, institutions and institutions and if they actually uh, are benefiting the least of us. And so it's, it's so St. John Newman, it's important that he started the Catholic school system. And in Philadelphia, in the education space, there's a lot of controversy about vouchers and applying public funds to private schools, including the Catholic schools. And one of the important things to know in Philadelphia, as many of the parishes have shrunk and many of the parish schools closed, that there was a new kind of mission school system that was independent of neighborhood parishes that sprung up. And it, they sprung up largely in low-income neighborhoods where a lot of the public schools were closed and they were no longer attached to the parishes. They were part of this larger mission system and uh, they were connected to uh, like often work-based learning. And so families that didn't have much money, even though Catholic education is less expensive than many other kinds of private education, um, uh, they, it was still a cost to the family, even with scholarships. So, you know, low-income families went from not having, having access to public schools um, that were you could you could question how functional they were or not uh, to having those schools closed and their primary options being uh, these mission schools with work-based learning because a lot of the scholarships came with work-based components and I'm going to touch on that later when we get down to Workman Place and Octavia Hill. Uh, so I'm just going to pause for a second and head around the corner. Okay, so I just walked around the corner and. Uh, you can see sort of this is the, the cathedral or the shrine. Um, I guess there's some remains of uh, John Newman here. And, you know, so I was talking about the, the mission schools and the work-based learning because I think that that's going to be the social conditioning for the metaverse and also work-based learning. And it's going to be linked to vouchers and the educational savings accounts. And so um, 
I think that's all important to have that context. The other thing I wanted to mention, so we, we just went into the building um, and we, we walked in and the, the, they actually were having mass at the lower level. It's a Saturday, they were having their Saturday mass. And um, as we walked in, we heard the sermon and they were actually talking about the Pharisees. And so, you know, the Pharisees were, you know, a religious group that felt themselves to be very much about following the rules and following the law. And, and I think like the parable of the Pharisees is that you um, think of yourself as being better than other people because you are following God's law in, a, in, in the way that, that is being expected. And the, the, the parable of the Pharisees was that there was a tax collector um, praying um, alongside the Pharisee and the Pharisee was sort of doing this sort of backwards um, compliment to himself like that you know he, he fasted and he tithed and he was certainly a much better person than the tax collector but the tax collector essentially had put himself in the mercy of God and Jesus was saying like actually the tax collector is better off than the person who feels like they're following all the rules and that they're better than everyone but in their heart they're actually kind of far from God and so I think this has a lot to do with uh, social impact finance and this idea of sort of fake do not fake, maybe people who are doing the do-gooderism really do believe that they're doing the right thing, but maybe they're not doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it to be seen as the good people, to have the boxes checked so that they have um, good works on the book so that when their time comes that their ledger will be full of um, things that on the surface seemed right, uh, seemed charitable, but were not done with an open heart and from a godly place. And so I thought it was really interesting that sometimes you show up in the world with a certain intention and the world gives you a message and the message was, hey, we should be thinking about the Pharisees um, because what is it like in a world of need to be the one that follows all the rules but actually that your heart is in alignment with the right, the right thing. And I, I feel like in very much these, this, the whole field of social entrepreneurship is baked into that, um, that that is what social entre entrepreneurship was about. And so there were a number of statues outside uh, the sanctuary, um, including John Paul II. And uh, you know, I'm gonna get to this part, or actually I think I maybe just read it in my uh, blog post about uh, Mondragon and Focolare and Chiara Lubin and uh, the role of sort of the reconstruction of Poland um, after the, the, clo the, the falling of you know, the Soviet Union and uh, Pope John Paul II and Vatican II and sort of the opening up of this Focolare movement, uh, which is all about sort of Holland's in my, my understanding and uh, creating groundwork for uh, social entrepreneurship and the right kind of education. So uh, I'm just going to pause for a second because there's a, a motorcycle at the stoplight and it's a little loud. So I just wanted to, to touch again on Pope John Paul II and the role of Vatican II and um, you know, when I went to Salt Lake City, the, the Cathedral of the Magdalene had two windows that were added in honor of Vatican II. And one was about aligning with the modern world. And that was represented by uh, the United Nations sign uh, symbol in a stained glass window. And the other was ecumenicalism. And I think that's something that's been worked on for probably a hundred years, sort of the overall ecumenical movement. And when I've been doing my research around uh, de hoc and uh, the uh, United Religions 
international, the URI, and uh, this movement to unite all faiths. Again, I, I don't want antagonism among faiths, but I do believe that this ecumenical movement is going to be embedded within the smart contract layer of all faiths, not just Judeo-Christian faiths, but that it is going to come with this observance of law. And then I would, I would ask folks to reflect on the fact that we walked into this space um, we heard this mass in progress about the Pharisees and that their adherence to law but without a good heart. In many respects, like to me, that feels like AI and the outside-in robot is the ultimate Pharisee, right? Is, is part of that, um, what I talked about yesterday, the, the Joseph Smith view of Satan's uh, proposal, uh, you know, that predated Genesis, the proposal that everyone would go to heaven because everyone would be good. And this idea of if we, if we um, live under the rule of law of the AI, um, sort of the fake promise of optimization of humanity, but that optimization actually means that we end up caught in the, the metaverse mind file program, which is a simulation and we'll never uh, be alive and never be living and loving, um, even though it will try really hard to use us as an armature to get there. Uh, so anyway, those are my, my few comments for the St. John Newman Shrine. Uh, the uh, the first uh, male saint in the United States, the father of the uh, North American parochial school system, uh, the Pharisee parable mass, uh, the Pope John Paul II, and I did leave, I didn't, I, I'll take a picture and I'll put it in, uh, at the base of his uh, statue, I left a heart. Uh, a friend of a friend had made these lovely hand-sewn hearts, and I'll show some more of those later. Um, a red heart at his feet with some dandelion and a feather and um, some white lovely feather, uh, lovely flowers that my friend Cliff had sent to me as, a, as to sort of cheer me up. Um, so the, the peace, let us, let us uh, come to a peaceful resolution, uh, sidestepping the outside in robot of the, the Pharisee legal structure. Um, and what's interesting is that the flowers uh, that were there at the base of that statue of John Paul II were celosia. They were red celosia and celosia are uh, the brains, um, these bright red brains. And so again, this thing would like to get into our brain and into our soul with their soul bound tokens, but we don't have to do it. We can tell another story. We can totally tell a different story. So stop number one. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm in, there's an exhibit on uh, John Newman. And again, new man, right, uh, he, here. Uh, and I just wanted to point out, I forgot to mention previously, uh, he actually, before he decided to become a priest, was very interested in science um, and, and plants, actually, too. And this includes a collection of his uh, a microscope. It says, uh, in the, from the 1850s, his fascination with scientific subjects ranged from cellular biology to botany. It is represented by this microscope, which once belonged to Dr. Lawrence Fisk, a noted Philadelphian physician and pioneer in the study of tuberculosis. And so it wasn't actually his microscope, but it represents the scientific interest that he had. And it's important to know, you know, we've talked a bit about code and books and law and encoding. Um, so this is the first Catholic Bible that was printed uh, in, the, in the North America and it was printed by Matthew Carey uh, and it was printed in connection with uh, Ben Franklin. So you know that's interesting to note in terms of the, the Catholic Bible and then just to also touch on the fact that 
there was a lot of anti-immigrant sent sentiment when uh, von Neumann was doing his ministering uh, and riots in Philadelphia against largely the Irish, and a lot of that was about also uh, immigrants and labor, um, uh, and you know the 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 disruption of the labor cycle. So, which is something that we're definitely going to be. Uh, approaching again uh, with automation and the fourth industrial revolution. So there's an emphasis on sort of the, 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 the church being persecuted. And then here's some, a book about uh, botany. Um, I guess just to sort of touch on the fact that he was interested in science as well as religion. So, uh, but that aspect of him being here when the, the Catholics were not welcome is important. And then just in closing, I was curious about this chair um, over here in the corner. So this chair, evidently, when Pope John Paul II vid visited Philadelphia in 1979, uh, he paid a visit to the, the cathedral downtown, but also to the shrine of John Newman. And so that was the chair that he sat in. And I guess when he, he prayed, this was the, the pillow that he prayed on. And so now that these are, it says that these are, are relics. Um, so... Anyway, those are sort of the main points that I wanted to hit home here, was the, the science, the persecution of Catholic immigrants, and uh, just a direct connection to the Pope. Okay, so we took the 57 bus uh, down 4th Street, and now we're in Queen Village, uh, which is a very old neighborhood of Philadelphia. Uh, we're not far from the Delaware River, the, the sky over there, you can kind of see uh, where it's all open and empty. That's the river itself, and, and uh, there's a little bit of urban renewal. This whole neighborhood was uh, essentially led to fall down during the 19th and early, a lot of the 20th century. Uh, it's part of the Seventh Ward, and uh, during that era, it was historically black, although in the 18th century, uh, in the early 19th century, like throughout, like up to the Civil War, it was, we're on the water, so there was a lot of uh, uh, mercantile business uh, and things related to the shipping and uh, exchange. Uh, so we're just south of Head House, which is, um, it's now a farmer's market, but what it was a, a mercantile exchange as well. So we're at this location that is actually called uh, Octavia Hill, Workman's Place, run by the Octavia Hill Association. And you can see, here's the Octavia Hill Association. Um, this used to be able to walk in this courtyard, but now they have this big gate up. And it, you know, it's a gated community, right? Uh, Workman Place Courtyard, gated community. Um, so you can't get in unless you have the right code. Uh, but it used to be available that people could actually go in and uh, see. But you can sort of see from the distance, these are uh, quite old buildings. Uh, late 18th, early 19th century buildings quite lovely in there. You can see some of the Halloween decorations still in place. And I, I put down a little offering here. So we're just inside the gate, Workman Place, 1748. And uh, this is the offering I'm leaving. So today I don't have as many items to make hearts themselves. And so I'm using these lovely uh, gifted hand-sewn hearts from a friend of a friend. Uh, so it seemed like denim was perfect for workmen. And so I am leaving some natural materials and here are some more uh, flowers in white flowers of peace uh, from my friend Cliff. And I was uh, sent a lovely little package with some uh, uh, 
dried flowers. I'm trying to remember which flowers they were. Um, yellow, like uh, goldenrod, and uh, some cypress balls and some acorns. And, and this is an assortment of acorns because actually Eve, who did the design for me, for us, uh, she also collected some things around the city when she was here last. And so they're all sort of mixed together, but there's milkweed pods from Bartram's garden and the, the paired uh, little mussel shell from the garden. And the package that came with the, the cypress pods and the acorns and uh, the goldenrod was, was wrapped in a, it was a lovely little box and the, the tissue was uh, hummingbirds. And so I cut out the hummingbirds and I'm gonna leave those along. And you can see there's a, bit, a couple of bits of pottery from the Schuylkill River. We're over on the other side of town. We're on the Delaware, which is the much bigger river. So I'm, I'm leaving a few offerings. And I think these are still some of my Rochester dandelions. And you know, they just keep going uh, and they're still beautiful in their seeds. So maybe some of the, the dandelions will find their way into the cracks. So why did I decide to come to Workman Place? Um, there's a several reasons, and I've always been charmed by this courtyard, but it's not just a charming courtyard. It's actually because it represents this idea of the ways in which this emergent structure of domination will lull you in by telling you a story that is a nice story that is not the full truth. And so this, this community here was essentially established in the mid 19th century uh, by two Quaker women. And they were looking to the social reform teachings in England of a woman named Octavia Hill. Now Octavia Hill was the 10th child of a corn merchant who was a banker that had ran into financial problems. Uh, his third, and he actually followed the model of Robert Owen, who was uh, a utopian socialist. So these folks were sort of the enlightened predecessor, like those who preceded the Fabians. In the later 19th and early 20th century, uh, the people who preceded were uh, these Enlightenment thinkers, and uh, Robert Owen was among them. So uh, Octavia Hill's father was about that. And um, so he was working on this uh, utopian socialism, uh, but it's, it's still embedded within the financial structure. Uh, the two women who uh, worked on that, and let me just see, their names are, do do do. They were, here they were Quaker, and let's see, so the association was founded in 1896. So actually it's not, it's more later 19th century. Uh, and the, the, the two women were Quaker themselves. And the reality is, is that, you know, we're told a certain story in Philadelphia of what the Quakers were, but they're actually really supportive of slavery, like on the front and in and, and some of like, uh, <laughs> they said that they were against slavery, but George Fox and the leader of the Quaker movement uh, we're cultivating all of the um, folks in the Caribbean and in, in Barbados who were holding these major slave plantations and just sort of acting as if slavery was the same as indentured servitude and they were doing a good job because they were Christianizing uh, people had been, who had been stolen from their homelands in Africa. Like that's the positionality of, of George Fox in this. And that's a really different story. And we, we understand that the Barclays and um, these other families in the finance and English finance were actually working behind the scenes to finance the slave trade. So maybe there weren't that many Quakers who actively held slaves, but their financial interests and their evangelistic interests were very much intertwined with downplaying how terrible slavery was and pretending that it was okay. And um, 
and then just moving on as if nothing big, nothing big. Let's just continue to grow our ministry. And that is ultimately the Pharisee problem is that when we imagine that we are of God and following certain rules and that we are better than others, we can proceed in this fashion, which is um, now integrated in with social reform and privatized welfare. Okay, so I was looking for the names of the, the two Quaker women who are looking to Octavia Hill as the model, and it was Hannah Fox and Helen Parrish. So I was mistaken. It wasn't mid-19th century. It was late, so 1890s. And so a lot of these buildings, um, this is about re real estate development, really, and redevelopment and finding revenue streams. And so what these two women said was, okay, so we'll clean up. Like, our goal is we renovate. We don't just build new. We renovate, and we will create clean uh, living spaces, hygienic, because this is part of the sanitary movement, and we will rent them to people, and then um, we will guarantee our investors a 4% rate of return. So this is like the total earliest impact finance scheme tied to uh, housing, housing first. Only the people who they screen to live in the houses, um, they said they, they could not have carpets or wallpaper. Everything had to be like white-walled and scrubbed clean. <laughs> And that the, the, they would have folks come to collect the weekly rent and they, they, they prided themselves on the friendly rent collectors. They were the friendly ones, but they were the earliest social workers. Um, and so they would actually take, if they found any alcohol in the house, they would actually take, take it out of the house. So folks had to live in sort of what was deemed to be a sanitary pod environment with your friendly checking in social worker. And you know, if you were caught to be not behaving, your things were taken away. And this, meanwhile, there is an investment stream coming to private investors. Um, often, you know, the Quakers were very, um, had a lot of money, and it was all framed as do-gooderism. And so this is what we're dealing with now, in, in my opinion. Like, this is actually our problem, is we're living in a story that we're, that there's a whole group of people who are Pharisees, and they're pretending like they're the good ones, but actually, um, the story they're living in may tell themselves that they're the do-gooders, do but it's, it's more complicated, and it's about investing. So. This organization still exists. If you look online, the reviews for the housing conditions are not great. And they've actually partnered with an entity called YouthBuild. And YouthBuild is essentially a workforce training program for students who have fallen out of the traditional education program. The idea, again, sounds great on the surface, is you bring in young people, maybe they've had trouble with a you know the, the judicial system uh, maybe they're homeless maybe they, they just got fed up um, with education maybe they had special needs that weren't met in the schools and so they're they're doing a work-based learning program for um, opportunity youth these are called opportunity youth to redevelop real estate for you know again a sensibly social welfare work now uh, it's now this started in hold on a second okay so youth build <coughs> Youth Build started in earlier, before, uh, well, um, actually not earlier. So Youth Build started in 1978, and it was in East Harlem. This, there was a woman named Dorothy Stoneman uh, was doing social work in East Harlem, and she asked the young people what they wanted to do to improve their community, and they said that we'd like to take empty buildings back from drug dealers and renovate them. So this core program started in 78. Uh, it became citywide in New York in 84. Uh, then it began spread nationally by 88. Uh, and like essentially by 1992, they had a federal funding stream that was bipartisan because again, impact finance is appealing to both the conservatives and the liberals. And they were training people to renovate homes. Now, I'm just asking you what this looks like when at this point, Blackstone is the largest uh, 
uh, provider of housing, uh, private home homeowner rentals in the country. And when we're looking at terrible affordable housing crises and we're asking people to live in tiny houses and casitas and how the casitas might fit in with this legacy of the sanitary movement and um, your friendly rent collector who may ultimately be a cyber physical system AI. Um, and often I, I talk about the short story called the domestic front and the domestic front is exactly about that, that your house becomes your social worker and welfare provider and your jailer essentially. And it's funny when I showed up here and uh, there was someone getting a package and we, we sort of initially asked if we could maybe go in and see the courtyard, but it was fine. Um, but I said, yeah, she's like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, we're telling stories about um, the history of the smart city movement. And guess what? Like that, that access panel over there is part of the smart city movement, even though it's, it's glommed onto an, an 18th century structure that was, uh, you know, redeveloped in the 1890s, right? If this thing didn't just show up with whatever Klaus Schwab, whatever story when it, when it tells. So, so what does pay for success finance, which is a finance stream to become self-sustaining that youth build is, is uh, putting forward, what does that look like when you have housing first programs that are managed by cyber physical systems and churches and Blackstone and that Blackstone is also collecting your DNA? And what does that look like when it's not just um, the lady showing up to take your whiskey bottle? but it's someone actually checking like checking your smart toilet because that was part of what they did in the 1890s was they installed indoor plumbing. So, okay, what is this next version? It's Stanford smart toilet tied to your genomic sequencing um, and the smart rent collector is going to tell you what you're allowed to eat. You know, is that where we're going? Um, so we should really think really hard and we should think of what it looked like and where this thing came from. So, so the last thing I'm gonna talk about is I, I made this map and when I get home, I'll show it to you online and I'll, I'll feed it in. Um, but it's, it's talking about uh, Octavia Hill's uh, father, uh, who was uh, interested, you know, he was the corn merchant and failed banker, but he was interested in sort of utopian socialism. And this, this again, fed into the Fabians. He was an admirer of a gentleman named Robert Owen. Now, Robert Owen was a utopian socialist. Now, it doesn't have to be socialism, like because what I'm saying is this is gonna be woven into the churches, the government, the corporations. It's like the trifecta of all these things coming together. So it doesn't matter if you call it socialism or totalitarianism or fascism, it's, it's the domination principle. So Robert Owen was a utopian socialist and a free thinker. Uh, he married the daughter of a man named David Dale. David Dale was a Scottish textile, uh, textile guy. Now, we just had the conversation about Lowell, the Lowell textile mills and luring the young women off the farm to work in the textile mills. And, you know, it was a dangerous and sort of brutal place and involved a lot of child labor. Uh, Robert Owen, the son-in-law, uh, really was working on this uh, new, new Lanark mill town. And he was promoting, guess what? The moral economy. It's the stuff that I just talked about last night. The moral economy. And he was doing that through non-traditional payments, labor vouchers. In 1820, uh, Robert Owen was promoting company scrip, but he was trying to frame it as a cooperative. And essentially he's still considered the father of the cooperative movement in the United Kingdom. So when you talk about telling a story where people who become ensnared in your system somehow are led to believe that they're empowered by the system, that's what's going on, right? They're like, let me tell you a story that this is a cooperative. Let me tell you a story that this labor voucher isn't actually company store script that we can control. Um, 
Let me tell you that character education, because they controlled the social programming, the social life of the mill towns, the education, the faith practice, they controlled all aspects of the civilizing progress of this town. Let me tell you that uh, moral education is making you better. And let me ask you to ask for that, right? To, to be moralized within the structure that we laid out. And um, this guy actually was, uh, had an interest in spiritualism and uh, Mesmer and Swedenborg. So, you know, the Carnegie, the Carnegie is the huge force behind this. And again, Scottish, uh, Scottish links between Carnegie and Swedenborgianism, right? And the, the realms. So if we can get a handle on people's material bodies and control them in a, in a spiritualized way through moral economics and character, this is what we're talking about. Um, now, the other interesting thing is that Alexander King, who is a Scottish biochemist, and involved in the OECD. He was, uh, he was the science director for the OECD back in the day. He was actually the president of the Club of Rome. So Alexander King, the Scottish biochemist and, and president of Club of Rome, was descended from David Dale, uh, the father-in-law of Robert Owen in Scotland. So we've gone full circle, right? The, the, um, Limits to growth, scarcity, austerity, cybernetics, uh, planet Earth as a spaceship that we all have to cooperate in order for things to continue to move forward. But in that cooperation, we need to use uh, labor vouchers and a variety of colored tokens to, to moralize ourselves, to show our values, to show our human potential um, within the construct of both the, the cybernetic um, work system and then increasingly like within Octavia Hill this cybernetic system of housing and housing first so I hope you can see how these things all fit together but you'd never know that a 1748 building um, with late 19th century sort of paternalist ideas like paternalism like whether that's socialism or libertarianism um, links in again up to like we can imagine the encoding um, you know, all of this came about after uh, John uh, Newman's day, uh, you know, when he died in the... Okay, so I just wanted to take a moment to uh, insert a little bit of extra information from the site visit today because I had printed out copies of these maps, but I didn't have a chance to really go into any detail. So I'm going to put this in for some additional material. Um, Octavia Hill uh, was connected to this settlement movement. The settlement movement is really important because I believe it's connected to sort of the Anglican church and this idea of that began in the early 20th century of ecumenicalism and that this new ecumenicalism is going to be a way of uniting faith communities around the world into this sort of common cause of reforming humanity into sort of molding human consciousness into some sort of collective computable machine readable material <laughs> and it's going to happen through the delivery of social welfare and uh, programmed benefits and that probably all of the faith communities around the world are aware at least at the top that this may be coming and I think it, it is an outgrowth directly of this settlement movement in the United States I mean sorry not the United States in the United Kingdom and so but there's this interplay right so Octavia Hill was a social reformer in the United Kingdom, and then she influenced social reformers here in the United States in the in the form of um, uh, the folks who were setting up the Octavia Hill Association for Housing. 
So I'm just gonna go over to the map. I'm starting with this toy and bee tiles. You might be sort of surprised at like, why do I have these images on the page? Uh, toy and bee tiles were sort of an iconic thing in Philadelphia uh, for many years. Uh, they were, they would, they were in the pavement of the street, and uh, this gentleman he uh, did a, a a film about it. Uh, I think I'm sh not sure his, what his name is, uh, Justin, uh, about the secret of the, these resurrect the toy and bee tiles, and they were some sort of linoleum, and they were actually put into the street, and they they generally said toy and bee idea in uh, movie uh, 2001 resurrected on planet Jupiter. And, you know, I found that quite interesting because who is Toynbee? And Toynbee is connected to the settlement movement. And uh, the it turns out that uh, Ocean Protocol that is developing all of the impact data is sort of gathering it all up in something called Jupyter Notebooks, which is quite interesting. And if we sort of imagine, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later with Cliff, um, on the other map, uh, that maybe this idea of mind files, which is pretty much what Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol has sort of po posited, that for interplanetary space travel, we would do it as some sort of digital filing system. Um, that the 2001 A Space Odyssey of Resurrecting the Dead, and you know the the dead. I will say, uh, you know, the one person uh, who had talked about uh, doing that. Um, was Lincoln Cannon of the Mormon Transhumanist Association, and he actually had a talk about how to raise the dead. Um, and this was this was quite a while ago, but this is this is a presentation that he did in the 2019 conference at the Mormon Transhumanist Association. We weren't at that one, um, but it stuck with me, like this idea that maybe God has given humanity technology and and is waiting around for us to use it, and part of it is resurrecting the dead, and it was but through collection of data, organizing data, and maybe blockchain mind files and where that all plays into the, the grand scheme or story. So so we have this idea of the, the toy and bee tiles and, uh, you know, planet Jupiter and, you know, what what is going on with these <laughs> tiling systems? Uh, who is Arthur Toynbee? Um, and I think he, he was connected to the social reform movement. And is this 2001 A Space Odyssey, this idea that maybe we resurrect the dead and we do interplanetary travel through Jupiter Notebooks and Ocean Protocol and Impact Finance? I, I'm only making speculation, but there are many people who've tried to uh, figure out what, what happened here. And... Um, you know, with with these tiles and uh, you know wh what they mean, and people people don't really know what they mean, <laughs> um, and so they're they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out what the options are, and for me, I think a lot of it lies in understanding what actually uh, uh, Arthur Toynbee was, what his idea was, and um, you know, I anyway, <laughs> so. That's the toy and bee part. So now I'm gonna get to uh, the mapping part. So uh, this is one of these maps that I've made. It's, it's, I made it a bit ago, uh, probably six or eight months ago. And I kind of crammed a whole lot of information in here. It's really crowded. And so, um, because I hadn't planned on inserting the story about the settlement movement inside. But for, and maybe one day I'll do uh, a better job of it. But um, uh, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> uh, so, so Arnold Toynbee. 
Okay, so we're going to go zoom back in. Uh, Arnold Toynbee was a world historian, and he was involved in something called the Charity Aid uh, Society. And later on, the Charity Aid Foundation actually has been developing uh, plans for blockchain um, and, and positing this idea of having a DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, to distribute aid. Um, and that would be uh, through smart contracting mechanisms and through digital identity. Uh, but this was way after Arnold Toynbee. And he was also a historian. So if you understand this idea of going back and forth in time and digitizing everything and sort of bringing yourself to certain points in time or certain memories and changing your view, uh, inhabiting another person's body, experiencing what that's like. Um, it would all come from this giant chronology of time, which is what Arnold Toynbee did. Now, he was named after his uncle, the other Arnold Toynbee, who was an economic historian and a lecturer. And he died young uh, and Essentially, a hall in the settlement movement was named after him, this Toynbee Hall. Uh, it was a settlement house uh, where sort of well-heeled young men from the university would go and sort of learn about poverty. And it was set up by this gentleman, Samuel Barnett, who was an Anglican social reformer and his, his wife. Uh, and her, her name was uh, Harriana Octavia Rowland Barnett. And so they were social reformers. They set up this university settlement movement in which they brought, um, you know, pretty well-situated young men into uh, East London, which was highly impoverished, so that they could learn about poverty and network with one another and then move on. And in some ways, it reminds me sort of of the Teach, of, Teach for America um, model, right? You, you take people who come from means, you uh, have them... Uh, sort of integrate and learn from as a social experiment from people in need. And meanwhile, the, the people of means are networking with one another to get better jobs. And then they do that for a few years and they leave. And then they go to places of power in policy and enforcement around, um, sometimes around poverty. And so this is sort of, to me, what underlies this, this movement. So you, you've got Toynbee, the Toynbee tiles, um, named after his uncle, the economic historian, and the Toynbee Hall uh, in, in the East End of London. Uh, this model of social reform, the settlement house, informed Jane Addams of Hull House in Chicago. And uh, it also informed Octavia Hill, this idea of social housing and self-reliance. And the self-reliance piece is really key because that's part of the, the both the blockchain uh, sort of behavioral management program, automated behavioral management, which is what's coming, um, and the free markets, right? So you you are an investor in your own human capital and your own ledger keeper. And the idea is overall improvement and self-optimization. Uh, I mean, the other thing about Octavia Hill, so I will mention, I forgot to bring this up before, but uh, her, her grandfather, uh, Thomas Southwood Smith, was actually a friend of Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, we've talked about, is both the Panopticon, the Felicitas Calculus, um, and you know the, the play stage so the children can play, but they have to be powering something. Uh, and they had these ties to uh, Robert Owen. Uh, so this is on this page. It's talking about Robert Owen's a sort of socialist utopia. And Robert Owen influenced her father, and I think her father actually lost a fair bit of money uh, being involved in Robert Owen's plans to sort of scale socialist utopias. The other aspect of this that I had forgotten to mention before um, was this idea that connects social reform to also militarism. And this connects to uh, the... Uh, 
gosh, Council for a Strong America, uh, that Ready Nation is a part of, that included sort of athletic prowess in getting youth to be acclimated to the military and to the police and to the Protestant church and to the workforce and the Chamber of Commerce and to athleticism. These are all things that the Council for a Strong America is, is advancing. Let me see if I can... Uh, so these are all the things that are being pushed by the Council for a Strong America. And you can kind of see underlying this, the social reform piece. Um, again, uh, be, be in alignment with the rules of the police, be in line with the military, be in line with the workforce, be an athlete, uh, be, uh, you know, Christian, be a good Christian. And, and all of this is integrated. And then again, within an overall nationalist frame. Uh, and so what Octavia Hill did is for sort of the kind of in line with the, like the police, police athletic leagues, you know, for those wayward youth of the poor communities, they should be directed into sort of military programs. And that was part of this army cadet movement in the UK uh, that evidently still exists. And in, in her website for her birthplace says that it has 40,000 members. And so, you know, that's important to understand in the grand scheme of things of, of this. And now I just wanna go over to this part of the map with Robert Owen. So, you know, last night I was talking with Cliff a bit about the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we inhabit and how people take our expectations of stories and invite us in and then often can maybe turn the t tables on us once we've walked into someone else's story and then they manipulate us within that story. So I would say that Robert Owen is framed as a utopian socialist and a free thinker. Uh, he was the, the son-in-law of David Dale of this new Lanark, which is a model Scottish village. It was a textile, uh, a cotton mill. And that is in line with what I've been talking about in the past about the Lowell mills and inviting the girls from the farm onto the mills and really overworking them. Now this model town was backed by these Quaker investors and that's really important because the Quakers keep showing up over and over again. Um, and so it was William Allen was a Quaker pharmacist and an abolitionist and John Walker. So the, the Quaker investors were helping set up uh, New Lanark, which I think is like maybe a UNESCO heritage site model town uh the son-in-law robert said okay like we have this uh textile business i'd like to set up a town uh he he expanded on it and he was really pushing the moral economy and that's something that cliff and i talked about last night and th the creation of the moral economy under ai uh they were also pushing character education for the poor now character education as we know is a huge piece uh, in the public schools lately um in my mind it is they're pushing uh, social emotional learning and character education to get the data to train for machine learning to train the robot mind. Uh, but character education isn't new and it went all the way back to these mill towns and that they were paying people in labor vouchers. And so, you know, the trick is there's a lot of folks out there who are like blockchain, crypto tokens. Um, you know, I can have my own tokens and I can make my own money and, and won't it be great? And, you know, Bernard Leotaire, we should have a whole ecology of money with all different kinds of tokens. Only if instead of talking about crypto tokens and framing it as liberation, you reframed it as script at the company store, it would feel a lot different. It would be a very different story. And so what I'm inviting you to consider is that maybe a lot of these tokens that we're going to look at in terms of an ecology of money may actually link back to sort of these sneaky moves of setting up a company town on script and then trying to call it a cooperative movement. 
So, I, you know, I, to me, that feels like sort of what Robert Owen was doing. Uh, he was also influenced by uh, the spiritualist movement, Swedenborg and Mesmer. And, and that was very big in, uh, you know, the early 19th century uh, era in, in, in uh, the United States. And among those were the Fox sisters. They were spiritualist mediums and they were in upstate New York during this sort of age of awakening. And they were hosted by Amy and Isaac Post who were promoting them and they were abolitionist Quakers again. So we have the Quakers showing up within the spiritualist tradition um, that it was very interested to inter interesting to Robert Owen, the uh, utopian socialist thinker. Um, now he, Robert Owen, left Scotland where the, the, this original his his father-in-law's uh, textile town was. He wanted to take the show on the road. He actually cr uh, founded an what's called an Owenite utopian community in Indiana, um, New Harmony, and he bought it from a group of pietist, pietists. Um, uh, who relocated, I think, to the Pittsburgh area, who had been a celibate commune. And, and of course, all of these celibate communes generally fall apart eventually because they can't uh, keep their numbers up uh, due to internal reproduction. And it's like it's a pretty limited audience for that sort of thing. So, um, But he took over New Harmony, and ultimately it, it failed. But I think that this idea of a planned utopia with industrialization, because that's what these textile mills were. Um, this is, is after the Industrial Revolution has started, and the Quakers are very much major players in the advancement of the Industrial Revolution, both in ironwork and millwork and the chocolate and finance. Uh, they're very much at all levels of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and I will say over here, one of the people who welcomed Robert Owen when he came in uh, was Cornelius Blatchley, who was a Quaker in New York, and they were sort of surprised at the open welcome that Owen had, but I guess maybe it was also linked to the investors in uh, the, the uh, new Lanark Milltown. And so there was sort of this push, this New York Society for Promoting Communities of Ecumenicalism, and I would say um, this ecumenical Connection again. I I don't I, I don't want dissent among faith communities. I don't think that's particularly helpful. But ecumenicalism is a key for unifying the churches across this metaverse project. Now, Robert Owen had two sons um, who came with him to the United States. One was Richard, who became a geologist um, and an officer in the Civil War and the first president of Purdue University. Now, Purdue is where the Sentient World Simulation is based, and it's also pioneering income sharing agreements on blockchain connected to education. So that's sort of early hive mind consciousness tied to skills badging. Uh, so that's that's uh, Richard Owen, who was early at Purdue, and Robert Dale Owen, uh, who became an Indiana congressman and was involved in spiritualism and later uh, had roles at the Smithsonian. So why is this all like important besides Octavia Hill, that Octavia Hill's family was influenced by Mr. Owen and her ideas around the sort of the sanitary movement and the social reform movement and the friendly rent um, uh, taker, picker-upper, and the, the, the one who is going to sort of make sure you don't have any carpet or wallpaper in your house and that you're not drinking, um, you know, behind closed doors. Uh, it's that actually Alexander King uh, was a co-founder with Aurelio Pecci of the Club of Rome in the 1970s, and he's actually a descendant of David Dale of New Lanark. <laughs> um, so I think that's really interesting. Uh, he was a Scottish biochemist. In fact, he was the director of science at the OECD and then later founded the Club of Rome. His his father 
J James Mitchell King had a work in the Nobel explosives uh, and chemical industries. And, and one of the things he was actually interested in, the son, Alexander King, was the idea of international law and that one way of getting towards a, a theory of international law would be through uh, the global regulation of radio frequency. And, and, and that was sort of, that came out of the uh, ITU, the International Telecommunications Union. So I do believe that this link between utopianism, whether that's Skinner, you know, Walden II, or Robert Owen's new Lanark, uh, 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 this utopian imperative is something that's going to be carried through the um, AI and possibly even as a metaverse mind file into some sort of off-planet civilization, whatever they imagine, or maybe if not off-planet, then some other interdimensional existence that that is being imagined through social impact finance and tokenization and machine-readable culture um, that's associated you know, to me, it increasingly feels like, again, reinforcing what John Trudell said about a predator energy that might be sort of a a technical mathematical um, something. I don't know if you could call it living or beingness that, that's really trying very hard to understand what humanity is and to um, to taste it <laughs> to, and possibly to gobble it all up and eat it, eat it you know, consume it. Um, to become more like humans, even as imperfect and fallible as we are. Uh, so anyway, so I hope that this sort of is of interest, this idea of, uh, you know, Octavia Hill being informed by this settlement movement, this sort of dy dynamic nature in, in um, the elite, uh, rubbing elbows for a brief time and networking among the poor in London's East End, uh, where Toynbee Hall fits into that and Arnold Toynbee. And again, back to uh, Philadelphia, which is, you know, this, this odd uh, construct with these to toy and be tiles, <laughs> you know, the, the resurrecting the dead on planet Jupiter and, and what that means, um, that that's being laid and imprinted in, uh, the, in Philadelphia, in, in the pavement, uh, in terms of sort of spell casting. Um, and, and also the, the charity aid foundation and the fact that the, the charity organization society that for the scientific management of poverty, um, is now really definitely looking at, uh, blockchain, uh, the, the, the paper that they had was called giving unchained. And let me see if I can bring it up just cause that's actually a really important paper. Um, and one of these things that I saw early on, which is the reason I had really strong feelings against blockchain as any kind of tool that we would want, is that philanthropy and blockchain, see, this is 2005. I think I was bumping up against this a couple years later in 2007. Uh, but, you know, just picture that you've, you've got uh, uh, the Chan Zuckerberg or the, the Rockefeller Foundation or the Gates Foundation or the Dell Foundation, some of these foundations that are turned into um, a DAO, right? And, and used to run these perceived, you know, cooperatives that are actually maybe AI fascist workhouses um, for happiness that's monitoring for our felicitas cap calculus. So anyway, sticking this in, in, in just an additive to the site visits today. So I just wanted to take a little video, just this, we're around the other side, we're on these little tiny back streets of Philadelphia, so you can see, but you know, you can see the, the brickwork. These are really, I mean, probably were sort of modest houses at the time, but this is the other side of the courtyard. 
and you know the, it's, it's historic so Okay, so we're at our next stop. We had a little bit of lunch and we're on Chestnut Street. Uh, we are uh, in downtown Philadelphia near Independence National Park. You can sort of see that behind me. It's a brick wall area. And I had wanted to go to uh, the second bank, uh, which was one of the first central banks uh, in the US, but it's totally covered with scaffolding. And so I decided that wouldn't be a very good backdrop. But I did just want to sort of situate ourselves that we're between third and 4th Street on Chestnut Street. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the role of 3rd Street in the American banking system and the finance and the trading of uh, different state currencies, which I think are ultimately going to be very much similar to what's coming with uh, a monetary ecology of tokens. And so I think it all comes back here to, to Philadelphia, among other places, but really Philly and the idea of these trading uh, different kinds of uh, paper securities uh, that come with associated risks and profiling and risk models attached to the money. So I think that's very much about uh, Bernard uh, Lietaire's uh, money ecology that he was looking at, like not only fiat currency, but community currencies attached. And um, that was on Third Street. So Third Street is that way. And then this ahead of me is where the second bank that uh, Andrew Jackson contested was, and that essentially his uh, going back to the gold standard sort of helped initiate this economic crisis in the late 1830s in the United States. So since we couldn't go to the second bank and it's all covered in scaffolding, um, and the first bank, which is around the corner, is pretty much covered in wedding portrait people because it's a beautiful fall day and lots of weddings and lots of brides and grooms up on the steps of these historic buildings. I'm retreating to this sort of ugly um, area which is Franklin Court and it, Franklin Court was built in the for the bicentennial and it's this little area um, you can see this little road behind me that goes back in there and it is a uh, the archaeological ruins of uh, Ben and Deborah Franklin's home that were uh, restored in the in the 1870 or sorry in 1976 for the bicentennial so that's where I'm gonna go next okay so we've come down this little little alleyway and it opens up into a courtyard here can see there's a beautiful fall tree and you know I was talking with the the person uh, who's accompanying me today and they actually do a lot of work with non-destructive testing which is the use of um, uh, I guess uh, markers alongside industrial applications that are then used to like create models of different sort of industrial uh, sites and the, the connection of the markers that are applied onto the landscape are coordinated through lasers with drones. And so really it's like making this wireframe, uh, wireframe diagrams of the real world, which is sort of like the metaverse. And so when I came in here, what's particularly striking about Franklin Court is the buildings that the Franklins lived in are no longer present. But what they do have are, uh, there's some archeological footings that have been excavated and you can see them by looking these little cement things uh, you can look in windows and see the archaeological remains but then there are these frame structures so we, we've distilled these two buildings which are homes down to wireframe uh, structures and and then on top of that they've added uh, in the bluestone paving quotes from the family that relate to the home and its material culture 
Now this site was actually redesigned by Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown. And you know, they're all about text and sort of syntax and symbology. So if we imagine that now a home and the existence in a home has sort of been re-rendered as a series of quotes, um, quotes about plates and mirrors and taking tea and visiting. And it's held within this wireframe. You can see a bit of the sky there. We've got some spraying going on today. And you've, you've got this abstraction of a house that's represented by lines and language. And so I think that this is actually really important uh, because when we move to the metaverse, it's not actually real. It's simply gonna be a representation of information. And in that representation, they need information to be delivered efficiently. Um, just like if you hear Paul Glimsher of the neuroethics guy talking about, um, uh, talking about uh, brain, the brain and the eyes processing things efficiently. Um, it's about energy. He talks a lot um, in some of his uh, presentations about the way in which the eyes are used in decision making and that the use of the eyes in the neurons firing, the information that's coming in and how it goes to the brain is very energy intensive. That there's like, your brain uses up three times more energy than anything else in your body. And so the mind fills in the blanks um, about what it's seeing uh, in shortcut ways. And so we can imagine how that might apply to this idea of extended reality or spatial computing, that um, these processing systems are not unlike a brain, right? And so they, they want you know, latency, access, transmission, data transmission and organization are all still relevant, even if it's an artificial brain versus a real brain. And so imagine sort of living a life where um, things get reduced to their barest essentials, these bare minimums, right? The, the outline, the text, the hypertext, the metadata, and that you're supposed to sort of fill in the rest with your imagination, I think, um, maybe one of the, the ways that that goes. So I'm gonna sit down a minute and I'm gonna read some a, a passage out of a, a, a book that's actually about Anthony Drexel. And Anthony Drexel, uh, his father was a portrait painter. So again, someone who's making an alternate reality. And he traveled to Latin America, but in traveling from Latin America and back to the United States, he had to deal with currency transitions. And then he got the grand idea of um, beginning to work in currency trading. And he started, uh, a currency trading business in Louisville at one point and then his, his wife said that's too far from Philadelphia you have to come home and so he set up a business on 3rd Street and um, 3rd Street is just this half block from us and 3rd Street is where these papers were traded and um, when I read the, these sections out of this uh, book it's a biography of Anthony Drexel who happened to be the uh, mentor to JP Morgan and JP Morgan is central in the human capital finance space, I think you'll start to see maybe how uh, trading of diverse debt instruments and trading instruments of paper relates to the, the Bancor protocol and the coming of trading the token. So I, I left a little one of the hearts under the tree and we'll go look at that in a minute. Um, I did forget to mention, so the importance of um, Ben Franklin, you know, of course he was, he was a founding father, he was, part of Freemasonry, you know, that's an important thing to know about. Um, and also his, his livelihood as far as being a, you know, a diplomat and a civil person and a scientist was 
um, printing, right? Printing. Uh, he ran a printing press, and uh, the actual buildings that are still there in front are the printing are interpreted as the printing, his printing office, um, and his business. And when we were looking in uh, the display about uh, St. John Newman. Uh, up on Gerard Street, they had one of these Bibles that was the Casey Bible, and it was done with, in cooperation with uh, Ben Franklin's printing company. So the imprinting and is part of the coding, right? And and soon, you know, imprinting also. I think uh, you know, Sebs has done some research into the idea of like the chip manufacturing and lithography, and the idea of printing printing books is not unlike printing chips that then imprint us with the ideas that are fed through the imprinting device and that, that that varies and then eventually the imprinting device may change substantially with the coding that's happening with optics and photonics and it may look very different than what we understand as an imprinting mechanism that is coming through delivered through a book or a device like this phone or something else that the imprinting actually could just simply come on like heterodyning and in carrier waves. And so I, I wanted to take a minute just to, to impress upon you that Ben Franklin's, the, the fact that he was both, you know, um, involved in Freemasonry, which knew a lot about symbolism and ritual and uh, connected to all of that is, is important. And that, you know, we are really just half a block from Third Street where the paper trading was. And that also on Third Street is the building where the Chemical Heritage Foundation is. Um, chemistry and radioisotopes and track and tracing are, are all central part of this, the way in which the chemical corporations have insinuated themselves into our lives and usurping natural systems um, and are coming now into this sort of whole syn bio nano era. And so, so that's like within this block that we're in. And, and then also right next to Independence Hall on the other side of the second bank is actually the American Philosophical Society. And the American Philosophical Society is essentially the repository of American scientific history. Like the most esteemed uh, scientists of the 18th century and 19th century um, are sort of anointed there, the collections are there. And in addition to their collections of early Americana and science are also a collections of indigenous language. And I, I think that's really, really vital. It's about indigenous cosmology, putting those into a computational form. So I'm gonna read a little bit. This book is called uh, The Man Who Made Wall Street uh, by Dan Rottenberg, I think is a local Philadelphian. Uh, Anthony J. Drexel and the Rise of Modern Finance. And so do those folks over at Wharton know what they are doing? Like have they spent a lot of time sort of looking into what 19th century finance was like and how it relates to uh, blockchain and crypto and tokens? Um, I would be interested to know that. If any of you guys know about uh, business, business folks who are interested in history, I would love to know if they're making connections between um, Philadelphia of the early the 1830s and um, the cryptocurrency trading today um, that's going to be coming through Bancor with smart contracting like Mr. Griggs and Cello's Beautiful Money. Uh, so this is, so again, Drexel is J.P. Morgan's uh, mentor. J.P. Morgan was sort of a wayward guy at the time and, and Drexel took him under his wing and made him what he was. Drexel, at, at the end of his life, founded a university. Drexel University is in West Philadelphia. It's uh, adjacent to the University of Pennsylvania, so those two are sort of right close to each other. It's known as more of a technical school, um, but it's, it also does cooperative, uh, work-based cooperatives. And the digital badge program, the digital on-ramp program that was initially sponsored by IBM here in the city in, I believe, 2012, 
you know, it didn't go anywhere at the time because it wasn't its time. Like we didn't have digital identity. We didn't have ubiquitous spatial computing yet. Um, but it didn't actually disappear. The digital on-ramp program actually went to go into sort of mothballs at Drexel University. And Drexel University also, individuals associated with the university had a major role in developing RFID technology, so supply chain trip tracking technology. Um, so keep all of this in mind in the background um, as, as you listen to these sections that I'm going to read. Trading in currencies, or quote-unquote money shaving, as it was then called, was, risk, was a risky occupation at the best of times. But it was far more perilous when Francis Drexel first got into it. Since the founding of the Republic in 1776, paper currency had been issued not by, ben, by the federal government, but by individual chartered banks. In effect, these banks were legally empowered to issue their own notes, a privilege that required the issuing bank to redeem those notes in specie, gold or civil, si silver or some equivalent, on demand. Just as banks today issue credit cards to save customers the inconvenience of carrying cash, so the early American banks issued notes to spare customers their need to carry gold and silver. Okay, so um, the trading in currency, right? Gold and silver trading. It goes on to say, all but one of these early note issuing banks operated under state charters and their notes invariably declined in value as they crossed state lines. Just as say Canadian dollars today circulate with less alacrity in Boston than in Toronto. The only national bank was the Bank of the United States from 1791 to 1811, and its successor, the second Bank of the United States, which was from 1816 to 1836. Both of them were headquartered in Philadelphia, and they're both on either end. One is on 4th Street, and um, no, one is on 3rd Street, and one is on 5th Street, uh, along Chestnut, really close. Um, this bank, the second bank, was a joint partnership of the federal government and private stockholders and was created to handle government transactions, hold federal deposits, and issue banknotes at branch offices across the country. Under the le leadership of the Renaissance Philadelphian Nicholas Biddle, this de facto central bank generally stabilized banking conditions and currency rates from one state to another. Uh, but to President Andrew Jackson, the second bank of the United States represented a dangerous concentration of money power competing unfairly with state chartered banks. Uh, quote, I do not dislike your bank any more than all banks, Jackson naively informed Biddle, but ever since I read the history of the South Sea bubble, I have been afraid of banks. The bubble to which he referred was a speculative hoax that had ruined many English investors in 1720. In 1832, Jackson vetoed the renewal of the second bank's national charter, causing it to expire in 1836. The bank continued to function until 1841, but only under a state charter. And so thus, after 1836, the only incorporated banks in the country, and consequently, the only banks issuing notes were those holding state charters. Yet Jackson and his advisors had grown suspicious, not only of the Bank of the United States, but of paper money per se, which they blamed for causing alternating cycles of inflation and depression. Unable to persuade Congress to restrict the circulation of banknotes in July 1836, Jackson on his own authority is issued the Species Circular, requiring payment in gold or silver for all public lands. His aim was to bolster the soundness of currency, but he accomplished precisely the opposite. Suddenly, gold and silver virtually disappeared from circulation to be replaced by paper notes of dubious value. Western banks, unable to meet the sudden demand for gold and silver, began to fail one after the other, 
And by the spring of 1837, the entire country was gripped in the first major financial depression. And so right around 1837 was when uh, John uh, uh, Newman, uh, the German priest, came to, to New York um, and then eventually made his way via upstate New York and Maryland to become the Bishop of Philadelphia in the 1850s. The surviving state chartered bank had a hard time meeting their legal requirement to come up with the necessary gold or silver to redeem notes on demand, so the value of their notes varied widely from place to place, generally falling more and more below face value as the notes moved farther from their place of issue. As long as the United States lacked a uniform bank currency, a lively trade in buying and selling the rash of paper money in circulation persisted. Some dealers and newspapers published guides, which they updated regularly, reporting the value of the many banknotes in circulation. By maintaining a liquid secondary market for banknotes, that is, providing assurance that a holder could always find a buyer for his note at some price, these currency brokers enhanced the value of the dubious paper currency then in circulation. In this respect, they were just as important to the health of the nation's economy in the 1830s and 40s and bond brokers became, as bond brokers became in the 20th century. Right? So imagine thinking about all of these currencies being traded at different rates depending on their geographic location. So think geofencing right? and, and satellite tracking and, and tracking of currency, right? digital currency, um, tracking, uh, and then making a prediction about the, the value of that currency depending on its quality. Right? And, and, and all of that being done through AI quantum computers. Now, that's where we're going, I think, with these tokens. So, so Francis Drexel op opened this currency exchange in Louisville, uh, and like he, he had various contacts. Uh, it's not known exactly why he chose Louisville, but I think uh, it said that it could have been because they required the gold backing that Louisville was well centered at the sort of opening of the Western lands at that point, such as they were in Ohio, and that they could get Mex uh, gold and silver from Mexico uh, up the Mississippi in five days. So it was like an auspicious location. But his wife was not that crazy about Louisville, and so he said he really had to come home to Philadelphia. Um, and then so he brought his sons into the business, who were young teenagers. Within two years, Francis would bring his son Anthony, then just 13 years old, into the currency business. 32 years after that, Anthony would beckon Pierpont Morgan to his monumental mission in life. But on that day, Francis Drexel set aside his palette, his painting palette, and opened his currency brokerage along the Louisville waterfront. He had no thought of changing the world. He was simply struggling to survive as he had been doing instinctively for 28 years. Okay, so the painter turns currency trader along with his sons. Um, so yes, so then he had to come home and uh, it says he found success as a Louisville uh, currency broker and his Philadelphia born wife Catherine insisted he return to her hometown. So at the beginning of 1838, after less than a year in Louisville, Francis opened a currency office in a narrow 14-foot wide building at 34 South 3rd Street in the heart of Philadelphia's financial district and just around the corner from Nicholas Biddle's ill-fated Second Bank of the United States. And that's pretty much where we're at, very close. Late each winter, why 3rd Street? So late each winter, merchants from the western and southern states journeyed to Market Street in Philadelphia to purchase their goods for the coming year. They paid for this merchandise with the paper notes issued by home banks, the Red Dog Money of Michigan, the Wildcat Money of Mississippi, and the Canal Scrip of Indiana, for example, which was generally as despised as their names imply. 
These currencies were valid at the issuing bank, but were considered uncurrent, that is, unredeemable beyond 100 miles from home. Thus, issuing banks used every means to keep their notes in circulation as far from home as possible, and traveling merchants who received these notes were constantly devising schemes to get rid of them. The quickest way to do so was to sell the notes to currency brokers, so Philadelphia's brokers waited on 3rd Street to buy and sell this uncurrent money at a sizable discount, given the risks involved. Years later, a former counting house boy for one of the Market Street wholesale houses described the process as it worked in 1838. I would be given a package of money consisting of notes of all denominations and sometimes from all states of the Union. I would go into 3rd Street and from one broker to another and finally sell to the one whose bid was the highest. Francis M. Drexel had been operating on 3rd Street for less than a year but left a favorable impression on this boy. And so he talks about, like, it says nice things about Drexel. Um, uh, let's see. Dealing in uncurrent money wasn't the Third Street Broker's only activity. Since the concept of borrowing to finance a business wasn't yet accepted, much business was conducted on credit. That is, businesses furnishing IOUs to their suppliers in lieu of cash. Unlike uncurrent banknotes, these so-called country checks and notes of hand were similarly bought and sold freely in Third Street. This business of Francis M. Drexel's was barely two years old, and his sons Francis A. and Anthony were only 15 and 13, when the boys' formal education ended and they went to work as clerks in their father's office in 1839. Unlike his own father, Anthony was never one to question his father's plans for his future. From that point on, Anthony's cultural and business education alike would be confined to his father's office and his home under the direct supervision of his father. By 1844, the nation had finally recovered from the Panic of 1837. Now the U.S. economy shifted into a new expansive era, stimulated by European demand for American cotton and grain and by the first boom in railroad construction. Francis M. Drexel was not only, had not only survived the Depression, as he accumulated more capital, he slowly and cautiously expanded the firm's service. He began buying and selling not only banknotes, but also domestic and foreign bills of exchange, the standard instruments then used to finance trade and commerce. A bill of exchange was written, a written commitment to pay a specified sum to the bearer at a fixed future date. Usually the seller of some goods would draw a bill of exchange from a buyer in order to give him credit for a few months, thus allowing the buyer to delay payment until the goods had arrived and been sold um, in turn to a retail or manufacturer. Brokers like Francis Drexel provided a secondary market for these bills, as they did for banknotes. So what's not being said and what happens so often in these conversations is the merchandise that they're talking about in many cases was actually enslaved African people. I mean, that's that was among the merchandise because at this time there was a shift from uh, agriculture in the tidewater of tobacco to moving people down to the deep south to Mississippi and Alabama for the sugar plantations and the cotton plantations. And so they were taking whole families from the Maryland, Virginia tidewater and pulling them down um, uh, into the Deep South, and that was cross-state borderline currency. And so these third-party holders of the bills of lading, these notes of exchange, were central both in Philadelphia and in New York. And so I, I, I strongly believe that the blockchain system, blockchain identity, and this idea of learn card and education as a new currency, backing our currency with our um, futures trading on our work, meaning our mental capacity, whether that be our emotional data, our cognitive data that we be used as part of a cloud mind computing service, that that is actually this education on the blockchain is 
the 21st century metaverse version of bills of exchange notes on enslaved human capital that were at that time used for the harvest of tobacco, corn, uh, tobacco, sugar, and cotton. It's a direct connection, guys. I mean, it's clearly a direct connection, and yet everyone wants to dance around and pretend that that's not what's happening. Um, and I'm not meaning to say that necessarily having a learn card and being compelled to put your brain in a cloud mind is exactly an equivalency of enslaved Africans being brutalized and murdered and, and worked to death on um, plantations. And it's not exactly the same thing in that way, but the structure, the new manifestation of the structure, and it's no surprise that this is going after um, low-income communities, uh, uh, black and brown children who are targeted as at risk or underperforming or closing the gap and closing the digital divide. They need to close all of that to get everyone on blockchain for this cloud mind consciousness. Um, so anyway, I guess that's what I have to say about Third Street and about the Second Bank and about Anthony Drexel and about digital badging and Drexel University, which is at the le bleeding edge of a lot of gaming development too, um, and high-tech emerging technology and information management and that these are all things that we should be thinking about as we continue down this road that's clearly been set for at least 200 years. And so now I left a little uh, offering. You can see those buildings in the distance. That's where the print houses are interpreted. Here we have the ghost houses and the metadata. Um, I will say the other interesting thing, I'm gonna mention it because next we're gonna go to cesium. Uh, and they're actually building out the metaverse in the computing side of things. Uh, but someone had shared with me this idea that now Pantone is charging a subscription fee service to access colors in its palette. Um, and so, and through Adobe, I think. And Adobe is, is a central player in file compression software um, and is the, the anchor tenant in Silicon Slopes in, in, in Salt, outside of Salt Lake City. And uh, Imagine what that's gonna mean if the idea is that we live in an extended reality where people who don't have the money for a subscription have to live in a black and white world and that people who have access to all the tokens through either um, their social status or their behavioral compliance, then you get, you, get that, you get to live your life in color, in living color, right? Um, and, you know, if you've ever been to, a, I don't know, a youth hostel or someplace where you have to, a campground, you, you know, you have to put quarters in for a sh warm water in your shower, you get the cold water is free, but the, if you want a warm shower, you have to pay. And I feel like that's the direction that we're going. So this idea of the ghost house and something that's only minimally provided, only the most minimal information, because the, the the, the compute, computational system can only take the wireframe version uh, that maybe is, is monitored with tags and uh, sensor devices and monitored by the drones and their laser outlays to give you a, an outline of the thing, but not the fully manifesting, just the, the ruined uh, ghosts of the thing is important. So, and there's this beautiful, you know, we're fall, beautiful fall color. I can't quite tell. It almost looks like this is a mulberry tree, but I can't imagine they would have planted a mulberry tree here. But um, just, you know, giving my little offering. This is one of the little ladies uh, my friend and I made in Virginia um, when we went, uh, you know, we did our excursions, our field visits in Virginia. And so I had two others that I've left um, along the way. Actually, I gave one to Eve. And so this is the one I have. I need to make some more. But I thought that I would, I would leave her here uh, with the, the flowers of peace from Cliff, and then this is this is a, a heart made by a friend of the friend that I made the dolls with. And we have some lichen 
and um, you know I have some the dandelions there so um, yeah I used you know I have my my sweet grass with me and my my piece of my log and I, I did a little tuning with the the frequency bowl before we left so uh, so yeah so th I think the last spot that we'll go uh, it's probably going to be the cesium uh, building the metaverse and that'll be our conclusion for the day yeah so this is the the, the press how old is this this particular the one down there is from 1976 oh okay so when they made this yeah yeah when this became the first this is an 18th century building. The wall is behind my coworker and I is uh, older than Independence Hall from 1722, so it's 300. And then the wall behind you is from 1787. Great. Right. Great. Thank you very much. So just we're walking to the next place. We're going to Cesium by way. We're going to see if we can get in the Curtis building to see a dream garden. But this is the second bank. You can see that it's all under wraps. It's now a portrait gallery with the National Park Service, but this was the, the second bank in two iterations. I think it was done after 1837, or it continued as a, at a state charter. And you know, all of the people, the, there's some quite beautiful buildings here on Chestnut Street uh, that, are, that are later, but you know, banking buildings, you can see this is the uh, 1850s. So this is after the central, uh, second bank was done, uh, but lots and lots of banking power here and some, you know, Beautiful buildings and, you know, we're in the middle of the tourist area, so beautiful day, carriage rides and, and all of this. But people don't actually have an understanding of the way in which the, the financial uh, system, the, the structural system of domination is coming and it's all framed as, you know, feel good, liberty, democracy. All right, so here we are behind the American Philosophical Society. So the second bank is here for, for context, right next to us. And then on this side, uh, in that block is Independence Hall, and over there is the Liberty Bell. So that's that's where we're situated, and this is a, a, a statue of the signer. And you know, I would just sort of put this idea, like look at the heroic, like the pen and the paper and the contract, right? The social contract. And understand if maybe that social contract was actually made by Freemasons for some reason that we don't quite appreciate, right? And like we're living under a code and so we the stories we've all been told is that this is the good story like this is the good story and then we go to other countries and we bring this story to other countries by brute force um, often to profit defense contracting interests and um, other financial interests and creative destruction through war and then we bring the democracy and, and then new this, this new version of democracy is going to be augmented with tokens and here we're going to ask, tell you that you're radically participating by giving you a pile of tokens to vote on things you don't know about and then to ask you to give those tokens to the AI so the AI can be your representative and you know we're in the middle of election season right now and you know if you listen to me you realize that I'm kind of post any sort of political ideology the whole system is not what we were told in my opinion um, but if we think about Ben Franklin in the printing press and paper and codes and smart law and the idea that the, the most esteemed institutions in in our country, you know, like Yale, you know, they've, they've had these smart contract law conferences on blockchain for the past eight years. And is anybody telling you about that? Is anybody talking about um, augmented democracy? You know, I don't think so. And, and what does that mean? Because the philosophical society themselves, 
they were holding on to the indigenous languages, right? Because that is another that is another model. In some ways, they, they claim that it, they they based some of the the ideals on the Onondaga. <clears throat> I think there's some questions that Stephen Newcomb would have about that. But um, there's this alternate cosmology that's sort of locked up in this building in that language, and they, they they've sold us a story. And I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but in reality, um, everything I seem to see leads me to believe that there's more going on than would appear on the surface. Uh, you can see in the distance there, that's the, the Roman Haas building. I went out to the Haas estate uh, out in Villanova, so that was their headquarters in the 60s. Um, there's a lot of stories that are left untold, and um, if we're going to actually have agency in this game, we need to look around our backyard and, and learn what the real, what, what the I was going to say real, real is a coded language, but um, what are the other storylines that get left out? So we're in the Curtis Publishing Building. Uh, Independence Hall is just on the other side of the street from here. And uh, we've come into the lobby. It's an office building. Uh, this is a, a mural. This mural is a very well-known mural. Uh, it's called Dream Garden. And it was commissioned by the head of the Curtis Publishing Company, which was very important early 20th century publisher, Ladies Home Journal, Jack and Jill Magazine, a lot of uh, notable publications. He commissioned this mural uh, from Maxfield Parish and it was executed by uh, Tiffany and Tiffany Glass. I think it's about 100,000 uh, individual pieces of glass in over 260 colors. And it was finished in 1916. Um, at one point around, I mean, in the, like 20 years ago, uh, there was a threat to remove the mural and put it under private sale. I think Steve Wynn, who the real estate developer and luxury casino operator, had intended to uh, purchase the, the mural and relocate it. And at that point, the Pew Charitable Trust acquired it and named it uh, the city's first historic object. Uh, again, Pew Charitable Trust is very central to the human capital, what works impact market. And um, so it's interesting that they were the ones who acquired it uh, for the city. And, you know, I just want to go in a little bit closer so some, you can see the, the tiling, the detail of the mural itself. And that it's quite incredible. And, you know, if you just think for a moment about what I was saying about um, the subscription color uh, service for colors, and then if you don't pay the subscription, then certain colors get turned into black. <laughs> and, you know, to me, some of what Cliff and I were talking about last night, about what story, what are you listening to, what story are you in, do you recognize that you have agency over the, the stories that you're listening to and the story that you tell yourself and others around you? I, I think that this idea of the dream garden, it's, it's really interesting to me because it feels like you know, they want to invite you into a story of bliss, and that is the metaverse. They want to—they want to craft a beautiful place that's so much nicer than the real world. You know, we're—we were walking over across Independence Hall, which is all you know, gated off with security guards. And you know, as we did, there were clearly several groups of unhoused people who were folding up their blankets and picking up their bags for the day to make their way to try to find some shelter for the night. And. They want to make the real world really, really terrible so that they can, you know, invite you into the dream. 
Um, and the, the dream is, you know, as I mentioned, I feel like it's sort of the, the Satan's proposal. Um, and for people who don't know better, it might be attractive, right? It might be attractive, but I feel like this, maybe this laughing figure, you know, in the mountain, like the last laugh is on us because at some point, you know, our UBI runs out and we don't have, we don't have, you know, the, the highlights on the sides of that mountain, you know, the, those shades of colors are custom, you know, they just go to black or gray. And, and then the dream quickly becomes not, not a dream anymore. Um, in this beautiful nature, you know, there is, a, there is the plan that ultimately most of nature, I think, will be inaccessible to, to people, to regular people and to indigenous peoples whose original homelands they were and that they will be set aside as some sort of reserve. Um, and, you know, in those reserves, we'll, we'll be expecting that all of the, the animals wear heart monitors to pay for the drone surveillance and, and then we turn the, the dream over to the AI and then the, 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 you know, the interesting sort of fractal, weird fractal AI art that happens. You know, the AI takes over in its artistic sentiment. So, you know, where are the artists? Where are the artists at this time? You know, what, what role do the arts have, you know, what role do the arts have to play? The create, where are the storytellers? Where are the artists? Because um, it's important. It's important that we situate this in the, with the right frame, that we're being invited into a, a dream garden. But the, but the dream garden isn't real. Um, yeah. It's not real. What are we listening to? Okay. On, on to cesium. Uh, cesium that is building the simula simulacra. Uh, cesium that is knitting together uh, extended reality. Okay, it's getting starting to get dark. Uh, we walked about five blocks from the Curtis, in, uh, Curtis uh, Publishing Building with the Dream Garden, and now we're on 11th Street. And on the third floor of this building, so I guess in that area, is the office of cesium. And cesium, uh, I guess, is an element. It's used in the atomic clocks. And this company is actually a central uh, company in developing uh, the systems for the open metaverse. So I'm going to take a minute and just sort of uh, do a little bit more deconstruction on that. But since I'm in the middle of a busy street corner, I'm going to tuck in uh, next door. There's a little courtyard with some seating. And we'll, we'll t tell you a little bit more about it. Okay, we, we were noticing this is a lot of new development um, here on Ludlow Street uh, between 11th and 12th. Uh, this is all sort of new new construction, newly renovated buildings. And you can see the WeWork space right there. So WeWork didn't go away. I think WeWork, WeWork may have some plans for us for a tokenized uh, gig work kibbutz uh, program. Uh, so yeah, so this is sort of uh, where we're going and you can see there is money, like in some of these places, there is a lot of money. If you open the taps for redevelopment after the creative destruction, it, it's ready. And you know, you, you, have, you have room for glamorous buildings and you know, <clears throat> fancy ways of living. If you are someone who is inclined to go along with the program, go along with the metaverse program. So you can, you know, the, the few who are able to really facilitate this transformation, uh, they'll be living sort of a fancy lifestyle and the rest of us will be doing gig work in VR headsets in casita cargo containers okay 
so we're in this little courtyard around the corner from the cesium building i just want to show you i printed this off before this is about the pantone colors being part of the subscription process <laughs> right so this is the future of the dream garden that goes black and white if you don't have enough tokens so this is this is real and um you know and this is also just a, a a form that talks a little bit about the pricing it's subscription everything is as a service even the casitas they were talking about like we're housing as a service and so um so cesium as a company again they're on south 11th street uh here in philadelphia and they're working on geospatial work uh, and rendering for all kinds of things so for digital twins for games for military for industrial relations um, and they're bridging what they say the, the digital and the physical world um, they're doing open standard open standard that's the key like they're going to want to sell us on the open metaverse open standards um, and then they're doing a lot of research into the metaverse itself uh, they're they're working closely with many of the major companies including nvidia uh, this is this is you know a little printout I have of the Nvidia work that they're doing. Uh, they're at many conferences talking about the open metaverse because ultimately they need open standards because everyone needs to code the metaverse to make this new manifest destiny, make, make, build the new empire. Like we will be like the um, the coding version of moving the giant uh, stones into place for the pyramids. Right? There, there needs to be massive numbers of people mobilized all over the world to build out this thing, to code this thing into rea reality. And so it has to be open, clearly. And, it's, and in those open standards, I think there will be a lot of workforce development. Um, here, it, it, they have an article that's talking about the real world and the internet merging um, through geospatial information. Uh, and, you know, here, here's building the open metaverse. So that's their, their plan, the open metaverse. So keep your eye out for open. Again, open source doesn't automatically mean this is the good witch, <laughs> you know, it could be other stuff. And um, yeah, they're using these geospatial systems for all sorts of things, measuring weather, uh, interactive virtual reality for real estate discovery, uh, high resolution uh, photogrammetry. I mean, every single kinds of thing, but also, you know, here they're working with Epic Games. So uh, my friend today, I keep saying like, we're in a game. We have to understand, maybe you can disagree with me, but rather than being enslaved, I think we're agents in the game. We are, we are folks in the game. Um, so on that note though, I do want to mention slavery because I forgot when I was over at Octavia Hill that um, there was a section I wanted to read about George Fox, who is the founder of Quakerism. And you know, as a Philadelphian and someone who has absorbed a lot of mythology of what the Quakers are about, you know, I've been deconstructing that about the, the finance interests behind uh, Quakers and their um, <clears throat> sort of corporate mentality and networking back in, in the 18th century. And the fact that they were doing some sort of dirty dealings back in the day, Mr. Galton and his mal mal malfunctioning rifles and, uh, you know, selling arms and, you know, the Barclay Bank backing uh, the slave trade paper trail anyway. Um, but <coughs> I found an article when I was getting ready this morning from uh, a professor at Swarthmore, and it was about uh, our understanding of George Fox's anti-slavery legacy and sort of the truth of it. And you know what he's saying in this article, and it's very extensive, um, was essentially that the Quakers were looking to grow their church just like all the churches, and they were looking for wealthy benefactors, and they were more than happy to look the other way often at what was actually going on. 
And so um, when he traveled to Barbados uh, and he was he was meeting with uh, family friends, uh, he he would look aside uh, of the slavery that was happening and imagine that it was just indentured servitude or it was something nicer than what it actually was. And almost that the Quakers were doing their good work as Christians by uh, sort of uh, Christianizing and bringing um, the people who had been enslaved into the Christian church. So I just want to read a couple paragraphs to give you a sense of this. I um, mean, how it, this relates to the patriarchy and the control of the household. What happens when your friendly rent agent or your friendly uh, pastor becomes an AI with actuators and sensors that can actually compel you into the behavior it deems optimal? Uh, Fox's reaction to slavery stemmed from his patriarchal views of the family. He cited scriptural texts from Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, showing the responsibility of the father slash master to call together his family slash household for worship and to enforce right order. All, whether strangers, heathens, servants, Fox did not apply the term slaves to blacks in the gospel family order, <coughs> were in Israel's covenant and must stand before God's judgment. The New Testament dispensation reinforced the father's duty to control family behavior and gave responsibility to them to preach the gospel. Christ proclaimed Fox died for Tons, blacks, Turks, barbarians, and whites and freed all from spiritual bondage. Fox may have been distressed at the moral failures brought about by slavery, but he did not see them as intrinsic to the institution. And this is the thing, people are making like good and evil about individual acts and they're not looking at the structures and what I'm asking today and what I'm trying to do by going around and telling these stories is it's imperative that we knit this together and look at the structure as a whole. Of Fox's companions in 1671, William Edmondson, John Bernyeet, and Elizabeth Hooton left information on their reaction to Barbados. Bernyeet, who joined Fox on the mainland and had visited the island for seven weeks in 1664 in the summer of 1667, and for six months in 1670 wrote epistles to the white Quaker inhabitants, which never mentioned the slave population. The closest Bernyeet came to anti-slavery was an epistle written in 1670, condemning holding a fast day to end an epidemic and such who instead of setting the oppressed free of undoing the heavy burdens and make yokes instead of breaking them, are such are not the people of the Lord, will accept in their fasts. Edmondson said only that in Barbados we had many large and precious meetings and many were brought into the way of life and peace with God. Um, you know, he talks about here meeting the needs of slaves served, served only to help the white plant, planters Hooten was more indignant about the Anglican persecution of friends on the island over, than over the treatment of Negroes. Lydia Fell's tract to the inhabitants of Barbados, published in 1676, denounced persecution of Quakers and exhorted friends to hold the purity of the light. She too did not discuss the slave population. Between 1671 and 1682, George Fox sent several epistles to friends in areas with significant slave populations, including Barbados. He remained concerned with the religious training of black servants, but never addressed their eventual freedom. He does not appear to have ever questioned the legitimacy of slavery. And so these are the same areas that John Templeton of the, these Templeton mutual funds left. Uh, John Templeton gave up his US citizenship, became a citizen of the crown, was knighted by the queen and went to the Bahamas. And that's where he set up, that's where he lived the rest of his life with his foundation to study 
managed population and genius and free markets and theoretical physics and religion. So I think we have to ask ourselves, is Cesium building an open metaverse dream garden on a subscription model? And what does that mean? Are we, are we to be enslaved in that? Are we to be um, indentured servants into that? Are we to live under the control of an AI social worker, God, overseer? Because I think that this is the game that they're playing and it's, it behooves us to really pay attention and, and to consider this game very thoughtfully before we enter it, not just for ourselves, but for the people who are coming after. So we're just walking to the bus stop and uh, I did want to just take a break because on the way to the bus stop there, there's, this is the Comcast building uh, that's behind us, the Comcast headquarters. There's two buildings here. There, this is the one on, that's the first headquarters and then this is this thing that I'm around is the second headquarters. And you can see clearly how sustainable it is with all of the, the light. And I was hoping that we could get in and see some of the public art because the last time we were, I was here, it was all about, you had to have a mask to get in, but there's like a security guard right at the door. So I'm assuming that that's a no go. But this, the lights above there are running text. And again, like almost spell casting, right? And, and as we came up, the, the, it actually was talking about, we shall have imaginary gardens with real toads in them in the meantime. And wow, that's quite an impression, right? Imaginary gardens, and we were just talking about the dream garden and cesium making the open metaverse. And um, I'll just show in, inside there, there's, so the art is running along the ceiling. And there's this uh, set of sort of fractal-like uh, shapes going down into the lobby. I think there's quite a bit of public art in this building. It's a very expensive building. And there's probably a lot of public art. Um, but and I think there's even like a 3D viewing circle or something like that. But yeah, just waiting for the bus and look if there if the open metaverse is run, it's it's run by your telecommunications and your table cable TV company. So we've got Verizon and uh, and Comcast here, uh, spell casting spell casting towards the metaverse. Okay, one more one less one less entry. We're standing waiting for the bus, waiting for the 48 back to Paramount. And um, I realized I haven't talked about Arch Street uh, Presbyterian Church yet. It's right behind me with the little red doors. It's this little bitty church and it's between these giant Comcast buildings on one side and the other side. It's like the little building in between. And I wanted just to note that uh, the pastor of uh, Arch Street uh, uh, Presbyterian is, his name is Bill Golderer. And Bill Golderer uh, is currently the president of the United Way. And I've, I've mentioned repeatedly that the United Way is behind the collective impact and the poverty management and the human capital finance. And um, again, Gold, Golderer, um, he, he, how do you get, how do you get profit out of poverty? Well, you create an impact finance market. Uh, Bill Golderer actually was a founder of the Broad Street Ministry, which is uh, services uh, for unhoused people and, and then has, is, is very well connected. Um, and so that's important that the, the, the faith community being connected to the United Way. Um, also, I think he, he went to SMU, and which is Texas, and uh, a lot going on there with that. And I would just mention, mention Presbyterian John Templeton uh, that I spoke about previously of the Templeton Foundation uh, was Presbyterian as well. So in addition to all these different facets of faith communities, right? we have the Vatican, we have the Quakers, we have the Unitarians, we have the LDS, we have Swedenborgians, but also the Presbyterians. And the particular um, aspect that is linked into the Presbyterians is John Templeton. and. Um, 
this idea of what money will teach you how to pray. <laughs> um, so what, do, what does that say? We, we really should familiarize ourselves with collective impact and what the United Way is doing in our communities around poverty, because I, I, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that it has involved some data dashboards and some sensors. Won't you be my sensor? Yeah, come live inside the robot. All right, bye. Thanks for spending the day with us, guys.